0: For the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Local Edition news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Patricio Rabayo. As the year comes to a close, we are reaching out to our reporters and correspondents who we talk to regularly throughout the year. Our goal is to collaborate with them to deliver the most up-to-date news from our coverage area. Tonight, we have Meg McGuire, the founder and publisher of Delaware Currents. Delaware Currents is a news project that tells the story of the Delaware River, starting from its origin in the Catskill Mountains of New York, flowing all the way down to Delaware Bay. Meg, welcome back to the program. Before we go into the past year, you had an editorial in the Delaware Currents, and you expressed concerns over the proposed budget cuts to the National Park Service, amounting to a 12.5% reduction of a $433 million fiscal year. What can you tell us about this?
1: The National Parks Conservation Association is where we got a deeper knowledge of what was going on. Um, And they are obviously ringing an alarm bell because the National Park Service has never been generously funded, but the fact that it could face $433 cut or 12.5% of its budget, that's pretty drastic. And the way the association referred to it is this reduction could mean as many as 1,000 fewer staff to ensure visitor experience and safety, shuttered facilities, and fewer resources to protect our beloved natural and cultural historic sites. And nationally, visitation between 2012 and 2022, visitation grew by 10% during COVID. Everyone was going outdoors. But in that time, staffing declined by 13% without even these budget cuts. Today, the Park Service has 2,600 fewer staff members than in 2011. So it's already suffering from less than generous budget allocations. But then these cuts are uh, pretty significant. And um, up here, we know, obviously, the wild and scenic rivers, uh, the upper Delaware, and then we have the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, and as well as all sorts of sites further down the river. But... We know these places as great places to recreate, to have a picnic, to go for a hike, to go for a bike ride, go for a paddle, go for a swim. That what I think that sometimes people don't realize is the not only are the National Park Service people um, in a sort of a caretaking role for the national parks in a caretaking role for us to make sure that we are as safe as possible. But there's so much expertise in the National Park about their parks. They're often my first point of call when I want to understand something specific about a particular part or a particular area of the watershed. That expertise is priceless for people in our neck of the woods when... There's not that many nearby colleges and universities who specialize in the Upper Delaware. So when you have a project like River, River Point Logistics, which is in the Slate Belt area of Pennsylvania, so it's a little out of your normal listening area. But one of the, one of the important things that happened during that is the National Park Service carefully got involved with it because it's perhaps more than a stone's throw, but it's not very far from the southern edge of the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. So they pay attention to when difficult projects may be proposed, and because they're very sensitive about seeming to be too much on one side or the other of anything that could be a hot potato politically, they're pretty good about saying when something could actually damage the ecosystem that the National Park Service are dedicating to maintaining. So, um, it seemed to me that this can all happen, this can all happen under the radar. And honestly, some of the messes that are going on in Congress, there's a lot of people who might pay attention to what Congress is doing and who are just not now because Congress is used to be such a mess. That we wanted to make sure that among the thousands of other things that our Congress has to pay attention to, and some better, some worse, that it might not be a bad idea for readers of Delaware Currents to know who their representatives are, who their senators are, and say, uh, we want to make sure that our national parks do not suffer this sizable cut. Um, so at the bottom of the story is the four watershed states, their senators, and then the actual U.S. representatives that are in the watershed so, and each one of them is a hot link. So it wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a really tough lift to just hit the hot link, send a little note, and, and you've done your good deed for the watershed.
0: You say, it was surprising in some aspects because we talked about what happened during the pandemic and how everyone wasn't going out, but now we have this sort of recent boom of folks going into there, but less staff are at the locations. The
1: Park Service has 2,600 fewer staff members than in 2011. Now, so usage of the park grew by 10% during that time. So it's, been, what? so it's already being strangled, death by 1,000 cuts, and the usage, especially in the DWG NRA, people are attracted to that park from northern New Jersey, New York, and as well as Philadelphia. So there's so many people that are using that park that there are times when the trash, is, the trash is a dreadful situation. There are certain times they have to close down certain areas of the park. And to some degree, that is a combination of usage and staffing. If they don't have the ability to keep things safe and tidy for all the visitors, I think they are honor-bound to close down certain sections in order to make sure that we're all kept safe. And if something were untoward were to happen to someone... I think people would be all up in arms about what the national parks might have done differently to make this danger less, less problematic. And yet, because it seems to be a soft target, there's a lot of, there's a lot of elements in the federal government that if the, if the budgets were to try and attack, someone would scream. But the problem in a way with the national parks, they never scream. The only one who screams on their behalf is a National Parks Conservation Association. And so I'm just trying to amplify that voice, because I, you know, it's, we have, uh, we have the parks that I talked about, and then there is, you have the other, 10 other park service union, units in the watershed, ranging from Independence Park in Philadelphia to Valley Forge to Hopewell Furnace in Elverson. They're not all national parks, but some are wild and scenic rivers, some are historic sites. National Historic Trails. There's so many different varieties of units that the National Park Service looks after. I just want to make sure that they can do the best job that they can.
0: Do you think the rise in gas and inflation has paid a part in this? The organizations are seeing expenses go up. I just spoke to a town supervisor here in Sullivan County and one of the biggest uh, lines of expenses they have in their budget coming up the next year is, is healthcare. Um, do you think that plays into this?
1: imagine it probably has. One of the things that happened, there was all sorts of impact from COVID when it was actually happening and when it was at its height. And we were aware of those impacts. But I think what we as a country are experiencing is almost like a bow wave from a giant rock in a pond from three years ago. That bow wave is still hitting us. It's gas prices, it's insurance costs, it's how much does milk cost. And there's so many different ways its this word dichotomy that we're in. Uh, by all the official tallies that they do, uh, our economy is healthy. inflation is down. It's all that sort of stuff. But yet you ask Mom and Pop and Jill and John, they're really struggling because that the inflationary impact is still working its way through our economy. So could have had could it have some impact on this? I would say quite possibly yes. But on the other hand, uh, the Park Service budget is $3.6 billion. The percentage, as a percentage of the total federal budget, it's less than one-fifteenth of one percent. It's not like an enormous amount. And the Park Service is one of those things that actually generates money. So the travel to the Park Service, the staying at the Park Service, the exploration of the various sites... This generates all sorts of tourism dollars that the local communities around those parks value and need. So if this is clearly to me, it's a no-brainer.
0: These sites are, you know, they have become tourist attractions. I just remember my trip to Puerto Rico and I went to one of the, this, the forts they have there by the ocean, which are run by the National Park Services. And you, exactly what you said, a lot of the businesses around that area cater to that due to for people stopping in for restaurants, eating, picking up trinkets, just exploring what's around there. Um, so there is an economic boom when these things are uh, functioning properly.
1: Yep, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it feels like while I, I think we even mentioned in that report something about we can't have a limitless budget, everyone has to keep within some sort of budget. And I can respect that. I just think that we're cutting off our nose to spite our face when it comes to cutting back on the budgets for the National Park
0: Service. Yeah, you mentioned in your article about the lack of funding, of economic federal budget allocated to the National Park Services. Do you think um, it will get better at some point? Or, or what has to change for it to be have more federal dollars allocated to the National Park Service?
1: Uh, I think that to some degree, if our representatives take the issue seriously, that could that could really turn the corner. And I'm especially interested in those representatives that are part of the bipartisan caucus for the Delaware River watershed. Now, uh, these are, that's a con- congressional caucus. It's not, it doesn't involve our senators, but a large majority of our U.S. representatives are members of that bipartisan caucus. And I think that's incredibly important for people in our in our watershed to uh, activate on behalf of the watershed because, and we've talked about this before, the weird thing about the watershed, it's like it's geographically and geologically very much an entity, but as a political entity, it doesn't really, it's not a New Jersey, it's not a Pennsylvania, it is pieces of different places and can be a little sort of taken for granted or amorphous or not visible in some way. Um, And those representatives who are in the watershed need to be reminded that they need to have their responsibility for the watershed emphasized. And honestly, you know this, the way politicians listen and then act is because voices are raised that they end up hearing.
0: I've seen it in my reporting throughout the years that how local action and local outcry can affect if enough voters, essentially, in their eyes, sometimes see that this is a concern for theirs and they want to be proactive in your community. And so they could latch on to a topic if enough people make enough stink of a certain topic. That's so That's
1: it. You know the history of our of the watershed and the Tox Island dam that was proposed for just north of Stroudsburg to almost to Milford. That was in a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers project in the 50s and 60s. But... There was so much grassroots opposition. It was one of the first times the USACE was actually stopped in its tracks, and that was local people opposing it at the local, state, and federal levels. And when enough people opposed it, it eventually, it was eventually never happened. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have the DWG NRA, because all of that land that was purchased for that uh, to be flooded in this dam, once they had purchased it, mostly through eminent domain they ended up turning it over to the National Park Service because it was basically empty land. Um So it's like, it's, it's certainly, I can't imagine that this issue is quite of the magnitude of the Tox Island Dam. But it does show that when enough people care enough about something and make enough noise about it, representatives respond.
0: You're listening to The Local Edition. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with Meg McGuire. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill, listen local. This
1: is Rosie Starr inviting you to listen to our special year end conversation with local farmers Hard Harvest. It's an hour long feature from Farm and Country and The Local Edition from early heat and a late freeze in the spring to wildfire smoke and wet weekends in the summer. Local farmers describe the challenges set by unpredictable
0: weather in 2023. Hard Harvest, Saturday morning at 10, only on Radio Catskill. Ten members. Nine. Just Eight out. Seven olympics. Six trials. Five ingredients. Four. Three cups. Two worlds. The one that got away. 2024 is almost here, but there's still time to count yourself among the supporters who keep this station on the air year round. Do it now. Here's how Make your year end tax deductible donation before December 31st at WJFFradio.org. Welcome back to The Local Edition, news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Patricio Robbio We are continuing with our interview with Meg McGuire we're wrapping up this year i just want to say just get your thoughts on this past year on some of the topics we talked about the big one was the watershed we talked a lot about um the aqueduct repair work um that's oh, going yeah. to begin that's a big one yeah that was a big sorry so so if you could recap some of the things that stood out to you this past year
1: the work on the aqueduct is clearly really important um one of the things that's in the back of my mind all the time now is flooding i think that um there was an incident that I wrote about. It's not up in your neck of the woods, and so you may or not have been aware of it, but in Bucks County, which is just north of Philly, a relatively minor stream, I don't even think the stream had a name. It was a tributary of a tributary. There was one of these massive rainstorms that we're starting to see more and more of. They got locked in place for long enough that this stream not only did it overflow its banks, It swept away several cars, and six lives were lost in that flash flooding. And when that happened back in the summer, I became so conscious of the thousands of little streams in the watershed. Now, folks in the Upper River have been dealing with the flooding up there, unfortunately, on a fairly regular basis. So they may have some knowledge of where this flooding is likely to be, and perhaps they would be safer than in these flash flood situations. But even there, I think because of the weirdness of our weather now and the fact that rains come when they come fierce and they often get locked in place, there there was an incident that affected New York um, where... Uh, there was one of the major arteries was blocked because there was stuff on the roadway and people couldn't drive. And I guess what I'm getting at is that to be, to understand that flooding is just more and more possible and flooding that might have been an inch in your basement 10 years ago is now three feet. Um, that the infrastructure that we have that helps us deal with flooding it's millions and millions of dollars. And that's from towns like Margaretville, to Hancock, to huge cities like Philadelphia, that the the incidence of flooding is getting greater and the severity of the flooding is getting greater and our infrastructure is really not there to be able to handle it. So that to me is like, like an overarching issue that covers what we've experienced, and what we will continue to experience. We are a water-rich area of the world compared to a lot of other places, and that has been a huge blessing for both industry and farms and for ordinary people like you and me. But that water-rich quality carries a bit bit more of a threat, Uh, and uh, how we understand that and deal with it and affect flooding is going to be a very different frame of mind for us than perhaps it has been since our frame of mind was created over the last couple hundred years when weather systems have been somewhat regular. Now they're getting more irregular and more dangerous. And what to do about that is something that um, I think our local communities have to be looking at, our emergency services have to be looking at, and that, too, is likely to have some sort of impact on budgets. And how much help states can be to help localities is important. How much the federal government can help. What sort of shape is FEMA in? In a nutshell, not great. What the flood insurance program, all of those things are going to have to be in thoroughly over the next four or five years to help us deal with the world that's coming. And remember, the flip side of that is... When there's rain, it's going to be heavier. When there's no rain, there's going to be a lot less rain. So not only are we going to be dealing with the issue of floods, we'll be dealing with the issue of droughts. So what is what sort of reservoir capacity do we have to help us all out if the rains don't fall? And everything about the Delaware has been built on an understanding that, for example, the Caskills would get snow and ice And then during the spring, that snow and ice would slowly melt, seep into the groundwater, seep into the various rivers of tributaries, streams, and then into the Delaware, and slowly that water would augment the river. They're probably getting more moisture in the upper river, but it's not being held anywhere because the weather is warm enough that there is much less snowpack than there used to be. So there is, the water is here today and gone tomorrow. Snowpack helps you hang on to the water for a little while. If there's no snowpack, then you can't hang on to the water. So you need to have lands in place for how to hold on to the water. So in case there's drought, we have a way to make sure that people get the water they need.
0: You, know, you just remind me, I was watching a documentary about uh, ancient civilizations, and it talked about the deforestation of lands and how it grades um, the soil. Because the trees are not there to capture and to stabilize the soil. Yes,
1: and then that's another sort of, perhaps a bigger story uh, downstream of um, your sort of patch of the world. But like we did a couple of stories on the just enormous surge in warehouse development, Um, 88 million square feet in New Jersey. Um, We mentioned the river point logistics in the slate belt. Um, The Lehigh River has been declared one of the nation's 10 most uh, endangered rivers because of all the development, especially warehouse development. And then, of course, in your own backyard is Camp Info, which is not a warehouse development, but is a significant development for that part of the world. And the more development spreads... The greater the chance of a degradation in water quality. Um, development will become, is already an incredibly issue, important issue all over the watershed. And this sort of thing that, I mean, I think that you're your part of the world is it, that, that they have the River Reporter, that you have the Southern County Democrat, you have the, you, you folks at JFF. Considering how rural the area it is, it's relatively robust news sources you've got so it's possible for people to be aware of it. But the truth is, and this goes for the watershed, it goes for the whole country, you know how legacy media has been falling apart over the last 20 years, how many newspapers. There was a great family-owned newspaper in Scranton, which is in fact outside the watershed, but that was a really great the shamrock group. There was a daily paper in Scranton. Well, I think in the autumn, early, late summer, something like that, um, the Alden Capital Group bought it. Now, obviously, some members, all the members of the board, had to agree to this, or a majority did. I think the family that sort of started that paper didn't want that to happen, but the board voted to sell, and so now it becomes an Alden paper. And Alden is one of those places that is stripping staff. As soon as they buy a paper, they strip staff. That limits coverage, and then people in those communities know less and less of what's going out, and that creates what we are now calling news deserts, that people just don't know what's going to be going on, so they don't know to complain about it. So that there is a way in which, as I said, although all three of those news outlets are not necessarily fat and happy with staffing and budgets, there is enough there to help people know what's going on and maybe have something to say about it, which is great.
0: Now, we're looking ahead at 2024, what are you keeping your eye on uh, at Delaware Currents? everything.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple of different things. Um, Now, this is the topic I'm going to talk about a little bit is it seems to be a south, south of your neck of the woods problem, but it's a significant enough problem to pay attention to certainly if you're interested in the watershed. That's the the problem of dissolved oxygen in the urban area of the river from Trenton, south, the little south of Wilmington, and that dissolved oxygen problem is a problem for the endangered species, certainly the sturgeon, which is an endangered species, and it's a problem because if the dissolved oxygen is a signpost for how healthy a river is. The the rivers and streams up in the northern end of the watershed are really healthy. They're just, they're in great shape. But the further down you go, you have an increase in development. You have an increase in usage of water. And the big problem is what are called combined sewer overflows. Back 50 years ago, um, the Delaware River was almost an open sewer, right? There wasn't a lot of care taken of wastewater going into the river, Then, between the Delaware River Basin Commission, the Clean Water Act, and the EPA, and some federal funding that helped support this, they started building wastewater systems, waste treatment systems that could make the water that's going into the river a little better. But they had these combined sewer systems that were maybe a good idea, because then instead of everybody's backyard flooding with sewage... They put the rainwater, the stormwater, into the same sewer pipes as regular sewage. But when there is a heavy rainfall, ah, heavy rainfall, it's a theme. When there's a heavy rainfall, some of that sewage makes its way into whatever stream or river that wastewater treatment plant empties. goes into the river not as well treated as it should be. In some cases, actual raw sewage is still going into our rivers and streams. And that creates, when that raw sewage gets into a river, the river tries to take care of it with all the little critters, little microscopic organisms that eat it, but in doing so, deplete the oxygen. When the oxygen sags, then other critters, like the sturgeon, can't thrive. So it's a, it's an enormously complicated issue. And one of the reasons that, one of the things to be aware of, if you're interested in the watershed, of course, that's enough of a reason, but these sorts of buildups and refurbishments of the wastewater treatment plants are going to be affecting every, every wastewater treatment plant in the watershed that has this combined sewer o- overflow. So that's an enormous story for us to be looking at for the years ahead. Um, the other thing is the prevalence of PFASs and PFOSs, PFOS and PFOs. Um, they are, it's so sneaky and so prevalent. I can remember when I first started hearing about this, it was around airports, often by the military, uh, used in firefighting foam. And it was like, oh, and these certain communities that were near the airports had a problem. But the water underneath us is incredibly interconnected. And now there's PFAS everywhere. And PFAS is one, as a shorthand, for a family of chemicals, I don't know, there's 50 or 100 members of that family. It's just it's ubiquitous and it's toxic. And we don't know yet exactly how to treat it. In these very wastewater treatment plants I've just been talking about, we're asking them to get gated in this sort of toxins that they can rid the water of before it goes into a water system that makes it more makes people more vulnerable to whatever the toxicity is of these peculiar chemicals.
0: So Meg, thank you so much for talking to us and all about the issues that we covered in 2023 and, and what you have your eye on in 2024. So we were talking to Meg McGuire, founder and publisher of Delaware Currents. Thank you so much for talking to us and have a great holiday and look forward to talking to you again in the new year.
1: Absolutely. Have a great holiday and good luck and good wishes to all your listeners.
0: And that does it for this edition of The Local Edition. Taking a look back at what happened this past year with Delaware Currents. We'll be back tomorrow. We do this all over again. If you ever miss a show, we have a podcast. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcast Google, Apple, Stitcher. Search for WJFF The Local Edition. Subscribe, share it, tell your friends. Find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio Catskill. We're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube. Visit our website, wjffradio.org. You've been listening to The Local Edition? your host, Patricio Robbio. Have a good night, Lucy. This is Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Take care.
1: Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania. Offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org You're listening to Radio Catskill WJFF Jeffersonville W233AH Monticello